Our guest today fell into distilling after years of being a self-proclaimed Pinot chaser. What is it exactly that drew her over to the spirit world? I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Sarah Elsom, master distiller of the Kadruna Distillery on the South Island of New Zealand, knew she wanted to work in wine from the age of 16. That passion took her all over the world and back again. When she returned home, she was lucky enough to walk into the fledgling Kadrona Distillery, and she has never left. Kadrona has grown over the years to produce not only award-winning whiskey, but also vodka, gin, and liqueurs. Thanks to the miracle of modern science, I was able to chat with Sarah, who guides us through Kadrona's approach to spirit making while she was in New Zealand and I was home in London. I'm really excited to have you here and to talk about all your brands because you don't do only whiskey, but you do a lot of other things. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how you got into distilling, how you found yourself at Cardrona? Yeah, sure thing. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Sarah Elmson. I work for Cardrona Distillery and I have been there since the place was a building site. So it is well and truly a part of my everyday of my past and my future. I, I love that place. It's it's home. And I landed there. I was home in between harvests. So my direction or my vocation was actually winemaking. Uh, I chose winemaking at a really young age. I was, I think, 16 and, and at high school. And around that age where sort of teachers start putting that kind of idea in front of you of, of you, know, you need to start thinking about what you want to do for the rest of your life. And I, at that time, was, was very engrossed in sport, still am. Um, so I had the, I guess, the privilege of playing with older high school students that were making those decisions, even though I wasn't quite there yet. And one of them was looking at viticulture and oenology at a university that was about six hours away from home. And I wasn't drinking wine at the age of 16, but I think I just loved this idea of studying something that would take me to all these beautiful places around the world. So it was really motivated by travel and then complemented by the fact that it was a science degree, but it wasn't medicine or it was it was something that still allowed room for creativity. It wasn't really a linear direction. It could go in any way. And nothing else really captivated me more. So at the age of 16, I think that, that kind of came into my peripheral and it never le- left. So I chose what university I was going to go to and what course I wanted to study quite, quite early. And I think I was just lucky that when I got there, I, I really loved it. It wasn't just this idea. It was something that um, came to fruition and I met some incredible people and I was at a university that was quite practical so you, you dive in quite quickly and I loved it and I, I did kind of think that maybe I'd get more into selling one as opposed to making it so it took my first job after university for me to realize that I'd much rather get my hands dirty and do the practical work uh, and then let those products speak for themselves. Do you remember the first time you had wine? Yeah yeah definitely but I mean I'm a Kiwi girl through and through, so we basically cut our teeth on Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. So it probably explains why I love acidity uh, and freshness and brightness uh, and anything that I drink. And that my first harvest experience was the polar opposite of that. I went and worked uh, in the Barossa Valley and made kind of the, the inkiest, deepest, darkest reeds that you can imagine. So I've experienced it all. I've tended to gravitate towards Pinot Noir, and I love that it's on sort of the cusp of, of a climate that can even grow grapes. Um, I love that it is grown in the vineyard, and if it's not growing well, it doesn't 
uh, and eventually into a beautiful wine. And, you know, it's tricky, it's challenging, it can, can go in so many directions. So I've definitely been a bit of a pedo chaser uh, and that's taken me to California and to Canada uh, and to um, Burgundy and France uh, and then back to Central Otago, which is, is now home. Well, thank goodness that you, when you made this decision, you did like wine and that you didn't think, <laughs> oh, oh, maybe I made well, the thing. wrong choice. Yeah, I made it, I mean, I made it young enough that I, I could have been completely off the track. Uh-huh. And no, I, I, it's, it, I've loved it. And it did exactly what I wanted to do. It's taken me all over the world. I'm very grateful for. And so winemaking and distilling, yeah. were they similar and how were you drawn into then distilling? I think the lifestyle of winemaking created the opportunity to, to fall into distilling. And at that point in my career, it was very uh, seasonal. I was sort of chasing that kind of harvest rush between South and Northern hemispheres. And it was in coming home that I was in between jobs. So you, you slow down and you look around um, and you fill those gaps. And those gaps to me were always filled with, with roles in hospitality and talking about wine and serving wine. And of course, when you, when you do that, you need to know a little bit about spirits. So. I looked to the uh, Wine and Spirits Education Trust and started doing mm-hmm. all the papers and there was a distillery that was uh, being built down the road. Uh, and I had never even been to a distillery uh, at this point because it, it never really appealed. You know, I was always chasing wine experiences. Right. And, and that slowing down in between harvests and taking that time to look around and kind of broaden my horizons, I was able to go and visit a distillery that was at a construction phase and yet to open to the public, have a conversation with the right people. I, I met with the manager. And, and I was sort of looking for maybe a part-time job just to sort of fill, fill more gaps. And I, I walked away from that, that coffee, that conversation with the job. And, and that was in 2015. And had you been a drinker of any spirits? Like, did you like a G&T or were you always, any time you could drink, it was wine? I definitely loved a G&T. I loved the idea of a cocktail. But I, I never really gave spirits the same time that I gave wine. I, I didn't sort of sit and sip them neat and consider how they were made. And it was more that they were always worth something else, be it a cocktail or, you know, with tonic or soda. So I think it took learning how to make spirits for me to appreciate the work that goes into how spirits are made. And so when you started that first job, about how long did that take you? Was it immediate when you were like, oh my God, you know, I never knew that kind of thing? Was it like a eureka moment? Yeah. I mean, I think because it was a brand new build, every day was exciting because we were unwrapping furniture and we were turning on, you know, stills that had, had, were just being commissioned and we were learning how to do it together every step of the way. So every day was absolutely a school day and we were playing in these this, this shiny equipment in this brand new plant and, and we were discovering what things could taste and smell like that had, had never been made before. So it was... It very, I mean, it was exciting from day dot, and that hasn't changed. Um, so that kind of eureka moment, and I don't know if there was just one. I think it was just really fun from day dot, and and yeah, that hasn't changed. A series of eureka moments, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I, I remember my eureka moment with whiskey, and that was, I think, with whiskey a lot of, and I hear this all the time. You know, people they believe that it's not the spirit for them that they've maybe been introduced to one that is really strong, beard and flavor, beard and alcohol. Maybe it's like heavily peated right. um, and it's, it's regressive for their first taste. But I think when you find that one that is just delicious and it goes on forever for you, that's, that's when you can really start to get into whiskey and appreciate how it's made and where it comes from and the people that made it. And, and for me, that was at the top of a ski field. I bought we piped to the summit and someone got out a hip flask 
And I, it was just like, I think the best thing I've ever uh, brought to my life. <laughs> no, it's funny. I was just at a lunch yesterday and one of the girls at lunch was saying, oh, no, no, I don't drink whiskey. I hate it. And I was like, have you ever had bourbon? And she said, no. I said, okay, come back to me when you've tried that and then tell me. Because again, you know, I, I, I read, also read a book on whiskey and they said, there's always one for you. So I to I'm totally with you there. You know, there is that one whiskey moment. Now, the distillery that you were that you started in, were what were they planning or what did they make? Was it starting with gin and then going on to whiskey? So that was that was Cadrona. Cadrona's oh. been my, my the sole title of my career in distillation. And for Desire, her vision was to celebrate malted barley. So make spirits all from the same base alcohol. She was always going to make a vodka and whiskey absolutely the liqueur kind of came as she was researching and traveling the world, and that was going to be an orange liqueur, which is our, our signature. Uh, it was gin that came a little later. That that came a year into us being sort of in full production mode. So that was the last of the table, but it's very much cemented itself and as part of our, our our portfolio as what we do. So I've Kajoda is really as as all I as all I know, and I think it's great that we make a range of spirits. I think. The fact that it's all from the ba same base spirit is not a limiting factor. If anything, it's more exciting. All right, all right, okay. We have to unpack that a lot. So I didn't yeah. realize that was your first your first foray into distilling is where you are now. How yeah. exciting! So then go back to maybe a little history, maybe kind of like when you went for the job interview. What were they telling you? What was the the thinking before they even had a distillery? What what was their mindset? What was Desiree's mindset and the other folks who created it? So the, the conversation for me personally was was I was going to go in and, and be like a guide. So the fact that I had experience as a winemaker meant that I would be able to pick up the, the content quickly and and sort of adopt those principles and be able to to sort mm -hmm. of communicate them clearly to our visitors. And um, I just found myself drawn to production as I, as I do. And, and, and happened to fall more into a production role within the first month or two. But the initial conversations were that I would be more of a, a communicator and a, a guide. Thinking back, there was only 12 of us when we started, so everyone actually did everything. There was no, you're a guide and you're a distiller and, and, uh -huh. and you know, you're, you're making coffee and you're whipping up food for visitors. It was drop tools and, and go and um, make sure everyone that walks through the door has just the best time. So how long was it from unwrapping all the furniture to actually taking guided tours around? I mean, we that, that sort of team came on in the last couple of sort of months of the construction period. It was a full year's work. I mean, a lot of work goes into the, the, the planning, the resource consent, the breaking ground, and Desiree can take full credit for, for so much of that. And But the actual construction of the distillery took a full year, largely led by her father and her then husband, Ash Whitaker. And we came on around September, October, and we opened the doors to the public early December. All right. Well, tell us the thinking behind even starting the distillery. You know, why did it even come about? And, and that's, that's Desiree's story, and it's one that we tell mm -hmm. every day because it is a remarkable mm -hmm. one. Um, Des, she left university. She went off to be a lawyer, uh, and it was, it was not for her. She sort of made quite a, a brave decision to walk away from something that she was very good at. She's an incredible um, student. She's an academic to the core. And she dropped out of uni uh, and she went over to the UK uh, and started pouring pints. It's a, it seems to be a rite of passage for a lot of Kiwis. Uh -huh. we, we like to get on planes and go and find ourselves. And she, she fell in love with spirits over there. You know, she was she was pouring these these beautiful single malt whiskeys for her patrons in a, a cool little bar in, in London. And and I think that was possibly where a seed was planted. It definitely was for her, for her love of spirits. 
And but it was many years later before the distillery was born. She came back to New Zealand, followed her um, father into dairy. Uh, so she's has a strong background in, in running a dairy farm and and taking something small and and making it big and successful. And um, but again, it was not for her. So she sold that farm, and it was the capital from that sale that allowed her to sort of sit down and do some soul searching and think about what she wanted to do for the rest of her life. And so she started writing lists about things that really excited her, scrapping them, starting again, researching them, thinking about how she could create an artisan-type product in New Zealand uh, and put her own sort of spin on it. And things like, you know, New Zealand's version of buffalo mozzarella or salmon farming. uh, (laughs) And she looked very closely at perfume. And we actually are, Cadorna Distillery is surrounded by uh, over 2,500 perfumery roses. We are growing them. And with the thought that perhaps one day we will make a perfume. So that dream is, is definitely not forgotten, but it was in researching alcohol for perfume, so neutral alcohol, that sort of dream evolved and became a spirit alcohol for consumption. So from perfume went whiskey, and from whiskey went that's to celebrate our raw ingredients and make more than whiskey. And so vodka made from malted barley, not trying to strip away flavor and really celebrate the, the byproducts of, of fermentation beyond ethanol and celebrate all those great esters and capture them in the glass and have a vodka that has weight, that has aroma, and, and then use that as, a, as this incredible base for a gin that celebrates local botanicals, for liqueurs that just go on forever. And she has done something pretty cool. <laughs> now, was it always going to be malted barley in her head? Yes. That she was yeah. going to make the spirit out of? Mm-hmm. Uh, why was that? I think the idea of, of creating a premium New Zealand single malt whiskey was, was the driving force and, and mm-hmm. the sort of diversion of other spirits happened naturally. But, but being a, making a single malt whiskey, our country is, is small and, but very proud. And I think when we go for something, we want to we compete on the world stage. And so she went for the King of Grants. And the vodka how long did it take before she had a vodka that she thought okay i'm gonna bottle this yeah i mean well the, the vodka and the whiskey are, are become two very different things depending on the still we use to distill them so they're the same mm-hmm. in the tin room and creating the base alcohol uh, and then the vodka is captured with column stills versus copper pot stills for the whiskey and i mean we can make vodka in eight days you know from from milling to getting in a bottle I think it definitely took time to commission those stills and to, to discover sort of what that sort of ester profile needed to look mm-hmm. like. And um, because it is, if, if you're a vodka drinker and you're searching for for neutrality or or that that purity in the form of it tasting like absolutely nothing, then the reed is not for you. The reed is is almost the gateway to whiskey because it has weight in it and it, it, there's so much going on in the glass. But yeah, and I think I mean we we can't underestimate that the planning and and the little choices that you make along the way in building a distillery that create your signature style. You can't undo the shape and size of your stills and their construction. And I, I would imagine that she spent a lot of time thinking about these details. Absolutely. Yeah, it must have been so exciting to be there, you know, the whole time. And when the first batch, you know, right from the still and tasted it, it must have been really exciting. And it, it still feels like that, just the whiskey is aging. And, you know, every time we taste an older older um, spirit, it's the first time we've ever tried it at that age. So. There's still definitely that excitement. Absolutely. So you first had the vodka, the reed. Yes. So tell me about the naming of it. You know, number one, I, the distillery is named after the place where you are, right? Yes. So how about the name of the vodka? How did that come about? 
So Reed Anastasiari's maiden name, the vodka was the very first thing that she made and she wanted her her family, her own family name on the bottle. The name is hugely, you know, it's sentimental, it's important to her. It's also the name of her baby girl. So she named her daughter uh, Reed as well. Mm-hmm. And was she always going to call her whiskey the name of the place? I'm not too sure, but I think it, it resonated. I mean, the, the place, I think, drew her quite early in the game. So the, the Cadrona Valley is very special to her. Mm-hmm. And the name, it's the name of the valley itself is strong. Uh, and it, it's a place in Scotland, like so many places in New Zealand have a connection to Scotland. And I think that felt right that she wanted to make a whiskey that would you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with the best that Scotland could make. So I think the name of the place and being Scottish was was really fitting for her ambition. So the whiskey itself, can you tell me a little bit about the process of the whiskey making? Yeah, sure thing. So we receive the malted barley on site. We mill it to our specifications. Uh, we then mash in and create a base alcohol. We do we apply minimal raking in the mash tin, so it's really it's it's more about just collecting the maximum amount of, of that kind of natural sugar source from a grain that is is highly selected. So we work with varieties that are approved for distillation through um, the Institute of Brewing and Distillation, and we don't want to extract too much of the husk and that grit tannin. It's it's quite we're looking for something that in the glass will be strong but fruit forward and layered and not overly kind of woody or aggressive and so minimal raking in the mash tun our fermentation program is a minimum of 72 hours in tank and now you need at least sort of 4850 to capture the the ethanol potential Mm. i guess of a fermentation and hours beyond that you're really starting to make stylistic decisions so the push to 72 that that extra time in tank allows these quite interesting um, byproducts. So the yeast becomes stressed and they create aldehydes and acids that become esters. And a really predominant one is isoamyl acetate, which just smells like banana or yeah. pear. So the, the tun room itself just smells like banana bread on like day two of the fermentation. It's really delicious. And, and then beyond that, you get sort of secondary fermented characters. You get a bit of lactobacillic bacteria and, and we're probably getting a bit more of that now than we will in the future. Uh, in the future, when we're producing more, we're sort of growing into ourselves right now. And we'll leave things in tank for 72, and then it'll be off to the still house. Whereas right now, at 72 hours, we take a little bit out of the tank and we distill it. And then the next day, we're back again. So we actually end up with wash in the tank for up to sort of 105 hours. So uh-huh. lots of time to create a lot of character. And, and people don't often realize when they visit distilleries that the character of a whiskey or any spirit is really created in fermentation and what you create in your base alcohol. The stills are designed to sort of capture that. So we do place a lot of emphasis on our fermentations and our fermentation program and, and what we can achieve mm-hmm. in that road. And from there on, they're off to the still house and the still that they are sent to determines what they will end up being, be it whiskey and be it vodka. And beyond. Now, the barrels that they go into. Yes. What have you decided to use? We, and I, I mean, we definitely sort of started off down the more traditional route of, of capitalizing mm-hmm. on beautiful Kentucky ex barrels. So they come over from America. And right. we've had one load from Breckenridge, Colorado as well, and just to spice things up. And then we're, we're very fortunate to get hold of a few uh, ex Oloroso uh, Gonzalez Bias sherry butts, which are fantastic mm-hmm. to work with. 
Uh, and we've continued to sort of hold on to that that sherry element in our maturation portfolio because it, it does serve our, our new experience so well. Um, and then, of course, being in Central Otago, we had to sort of um, capitalise on, on this location and we have a great relationship with an incredible uh, Pinot Noir producer, uh, Felton Rouge, over in Bannockburn. So 40 minutes over the hill um, through the mountain pass and, and, and at Cadrona, we grow about sort of 60 to 100 of those a year. Now, of course, the American me wants to know, um, so the different ex-bourbon yes. barrels from Kentucky and Colorado, are you finding that they produce much different flavor? I think so, yes, absolutely. I think uh, we did a single cast release at the Breckenridge, and I think it was probably um, a sort of sweet and effervescent type. It just had, it was just a lot more alive uh, in the glass. Uh-huh. And I think we've got a, a large proportion of Heaven Hill. There's a little bit of Four Roses dotted in there and um, Woodford Preserve. I mean, when we launched the Solera, our sort of on the shelf whiskey all the time versus single cask, that is a marriage of both sherry and bourbon brought together. So, we are mm-hmm. kind of looking to sort of iron out those those sort of differences. But I think in tasting individual casks, uh, absolutely, it's its own little microclimate. So. Uh, yeah, it must have been so interesting to have that because you think of the, you know, hey, a barrel that has that bourbon in it, at least for the layman, would pretty much give you the same taste. But one from Colorado, which has such a cold, cold, you know, weather, and one that has such hot weather in Kentucky that they would, of course give out a different a different flavor yeah sure i think it's i mean it's really also really important because we're not um practicing sort of uh shaving and recharring and kind of recreating something on site just uh-huh. maybe down the road but for right now we're really just celebrating where we source the barrels from so desiree and ash did a lot of work and you know hard work tra- <laughs> traveling the world and finding bourbons that they loved uh, and trying to grab those barrels because ultimately it is a huge part of the end result I would love to have been on that trip. Yeah, so <laughs> no, I we, yeah. If she ever wants to sort of go back and revisit that, yeah. I'll put my head straight on. No, but you're the master distiller. You can say, oh, you know, we need to go back and yeah. re, uh, Possibly, yeah. <laughs> redo that. <laughs> now, well, now that we can travel again, maybe I'll bring it up. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, what is the youngest and the oldest whiskey that you have already bottled? So we have, we did launch a three-year, uh, and, and, and that was... Mm-hmm. Never really part of the the game plan from the start. We we thought we would. Desiree really wanted to wait until twenty twenty five and launch a ten year and not do anything earlier. Celebrate the white spirits, let them do the talking, and uh-huh. let them keep us afloat, and then release just you know phenomenal whiskey. And but people were were hungrier than that. They wanted to know what was going on in that barrel, and there was so much excitement about the potential of Cadrona, and I think just tasting through casks and. And getting the opinions of, of people that have, have tried a lot of young whiskies and and seeing you know where they're at and where they can go and, and recognizing potential early and you know we were very fortunate to be visited by the likes of Dan Froome and Charles McLean and you know some big names in whiskey and they were like what are you doing <laughs> get, get it out there uh, and <laughs> and so arms are twisted I guess and it was really important to Des that 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 whiskey was launched with that kind of very open and honest recognition that we know that it, it that it's young. So the three-year was put mm-hmm. on a shelf with a label under Cadrona that said just hatched. And then our five-year, which <laughs> we're now that. celebrating, is called Growing Wings. We have somewhat adopted uh, oh. the New Zealand falcon as a bit of our, I guess, mascot. And um, it is a bird that visits us, that is, is special um, to this country and, and to, to our distillery. And 
and it became our, our way of symbolizing the fact that this is this young whiskey that is really just a snapshot in time uh, and how exciting is it that it tastes like this mm-hmm. now because just think of the adult whiskey to come. Yes, of course. Do you know what it's going to be called the 10-year? Are you allowed to tell us? No, I, I know. Uh, so next year we're, we'll be releasing a seven-year uh, and that will be called um, Full Flight. So I can definitely tell you that. I think when we get to 10 and beyond, we'll celebrate age statements for what they are. Um, okay. We might look at single cast, absolutely, but sort of fun expressions where we, we play with age statements. Time will tell, I guess. I think we're, we're figuring this out as we go. <laughs> now, while, of course, while that's all in barrels waiting, you also have produced these wonderful liqueurs. Yes. Again, was that always part of the game plan to have them? I think the, the orange came on very early. That was conversations at trade shows, bumping shoulders with teachers. And Desiree sort of formulated that recipe um, really quite early uh, for the orange liqueur. Mm-hmm. And then because the the recipe is, it's I mean, they're simple. What we do is we infuse flavor with that single malt spirit. So celebrate everything that effectively the read and prior to dilution offense, all those beautiful esters that wait. Uh, and then complement that with an infusion of fruit or flour or flavor and never anything artificial. And then use sugar and water to balance the elements, to create mouthfeel and to soften and lengthen and keep the alcohol high. Now, all of our liqueurs are over 40% mm-hmm. ABV and they are designed to be sipped neat or crafted into a, a beautiful cocktail, but one where they're the hero. You know, you know they're in there and they're not just that sort of five mil splash on for the color or to, to balance things out, they're the standout players. So orange, yes, but the other ones that have followed, no, I guess we're kind of, I don't know if we've got three this year that we've never done before, um, which is quite exciting. So there's, there's room to play with the liqueurs, absolutely. Now, why was orange the first choice out of everything? I think it's definitely a flavor that marries well with whiskey, perhaps. I think, mm. you know, you, you think of it on fashion, do you think of... You know, cocktails come to mind where orange is, is definitely something that is is worked in. I think for Des, it was really just her love of cosmopolitans. Uh, I love it. And I was going to say, yeah, margarita. Makes a delicious margarita, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. And so what were the others that, the other flavors that followed? The ones that followed were um, an elderflower. So there's a bit of lemon in that as mm-hmm. well. That's really very uh, a beautiful branch and suited to effervescent sort of like put a little bit of soda water or, or with a little bit of champagne and you're, you're off. And then one that Desiree sort of sat on and, and kind of came up with at home and sort of detached from anything else was our, our butterscotch liqueur. Uh, and that's something that she's chosen to to not sort of communicate in the tour as, with the process. She wants to sort of keep that as a, a family recipe that she passes down to her daughter so her daughter can pass that down to her daughter now butterscotch it doesn't surprise me because as a lover of whiskey obviously butterscotch is always one of those flavors that i find in whiskey at least in bourbon caramel you know that always comes to mind (laughs) have you played with it with your whiskey yeah a little bit i mean we always do i mean the the, we've we've got an incredible little cocktail bar on site and i say little because it wasn't part of the the plan a it was it's a bit similar (laughs) of a pop-up bar the team are, are so creative and making cocktails is an incredible way for us to engage with our customers, with local bartenders. And we currently have an international competition on the go where the best bartenders of the United Kingdom and New Zealand are going to come together in a, a grand final here in New Zealand at the in September of this year. So regional finals are happening right now. 
And and this is like really exciting way for us to see how our spirits could be be played with above and beyond what we would ever imagine they could be. So yeah, definitely we've had a play. Well, I've jumped the gun with the cocktails. Back to your last but not least, your the source, your gin. Yes. Yeah, source. You said that was um, the last thing that you created. It's funny when people have a distillery, they always think, okay, vodka, gin, then the whiskey. But you you said it was the reverse. Yes. So that came on and um, on the insistence of. Uh, Desiree's husband Ash, he was a huge part of the build. He was basically the sales force at the start and, and really drove uh, the product. He sold his business and invested in the distillery uh, and basically just yeah, threw himself at it for the first couple of years. Um, and it was on his insistence that there be a gin. And so the gin came into the fold that little bit later. And I think it was an incredible foresight on his behalf because that gin wave that has sort of taken over the United Kingdom has very much found its way to New Zealand. And, and the gin in the first couple of years especially was it was a huge part of what we did. And apart from obviously the juniper, how did you choose which botanicals you wanted to, to add to it? Uh, it was a real team effort uh, led, led by one particular team member and um, her name is Linda Jones. She, prior to coming to Kajona and in sort of a previous life, and still really today, is, is a herbalist. So she had this really cool 10-litre cup of um, still at home. And we, we just sort of played with these little micro trials of, of things that would complement our base spirit, but not overpower. The idea with the source was to create something and celebrate it, the kind of esters that are in the reed and the leaf that is in the reed and absolutely be a gin, but not one where the botanicals sort of were the king. And I think we've done that with the source. Uh, we, we have just six botanicals and a juniper, absolutely, coriander seed, angelica roach. We peel the lemons fresh on the day, so fresh cinnamon peel, fresh orange peel, and then local rose that we go out and pick everywhere it grows wild in the valley, uh, and then we dry out so that we have it on hand throughout all of winter and spring, which is when we like to, to make the bulk of our white spirits. Now, I know that you have, as you said, roses for perfume. Have you ever thought to use any edible roses in any of your products? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, I mean, the rose up is something we do celebrate a lot with the gin. And um, we've played with putting the rose petals in the gin still with just water to create a uh, rose water for perhaps cocktails. And it was incredibly potent, really, really beautiful. <laughs> but I, I just, I, I wouldn't want it to touch the gin. It, it, it's too strong a smell on the still. So mm. haven't gone back there and um, would need a lot more equipment to, to do that down the road. But no, we've played with edible roses. We do have a, a edible rose type garden um, that services the kitchen and we have a, a beautiful restaurant on site. And, and so the food is regularly decorated with beautiful edible flowers, but um, the spirits do not. No, no, not yet. At least you never know. There could be a liqueur on the horizon, right? Now, you, we were talking about cocktails. Yes. When were you, when you were creating these spirits, and this is probably a silly question, but did you have in mind how you wanted people to enjoy them, you know, first or be introduced to them first? Or were you like, okay, it doesn't matter. However they want to drink them, that's it. The answer might be different depending on which distillery you speak to. And absolutely, you had a conversation with this. But for me personally, I think, no, I think you should always aim to create something that is delicious, neat. And then you create after that. If you go at mm -hmm. something, if you try and create something that needs something else to lift it or to marry with or to balance it, then you haven't made a complete product. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So how does it feel to have this competition? You know, that they're taking this wonderful, neat spirit and playing with it. I love it because it just, they, 
they do so much more than I had, had, had ever imagined possible. I mean, there's one contestant that took the food waste from the creation of his cocktail and made a coaster out of it. And that's what his cocktail sent on. Oh, no way. And I was just like, that's so great. Just little things like that. I, I just thought that was fantastic. And they all have a story to tell. I mean, they're competing and they're so passionate and, you know, they're bursting out of lockdown. So their creativity is just like, and I really love it. I'm really looking forward to, I mean, the regional finals are happening right now. So we're getting all the, the imagery and the footage, but uh, the local one for this area hasn't happened yet. So I'm really, really excited to just even attend one uh, and then can't wait for the final and here in Wanaka. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, I, you probably can't reveal too much about it, but were there any other surprises of combinations that you were like, oh my God, I can't even believe that someone thought of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I think it's hard to just sort of remember just one because the the recipes that are coming through and the, the, the care that goes into individual elements and, you know, things are prepared over days or, the, you know, this is sous vide and this is a forum that they've created and it's just, it's so far beyond simply, I've got man in the shaker at home and bits and pieces, but <laughs> this is artistry and this is, this is science, this is, this is something that is really cool. So we've made sure that we're not missing a thing and we've created our own Instagram tag, hashtag everything's sort of being captured in social media and it's just been a real ride watching the footage come in. And are they using all of the different spirits? They just need to use one. Okay. Um, so that, that's up to them. And when is the final? The final is the September. And it is September 19th. And we've kept it quite open, just hoping that everyone will be able to travel. And it's looking like it's going to happen. You know, we're not going to have to cancel, which is awesome. And the, yeah, the regional finals are just happening right now. So coming together. Oh, it's going to be so exciting. I can't wait to see what they, yeah. what they create. And yes, yeah, so speaking of that, I always ask, um, now, I know you're a distiller, not a bartender, but I'm sure you have an opinion on this. Your top tips for the home bartender, if you have any, using your spirits, not using your spirits, whatever whatever you think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely would not, would never claim to be a skilled <laughs> bartender. Um, there, there are people that do that much better than me. I, I think it's just really important to sort of remove that sort of overwhelming fear that cocktails need to be really tricky, I think. A, a great cocktail and as a simple one it's just executed well and I think the best thing to do is just to start having a play and you'll be surprised at what you can learn really quickly and some of them my favorites just take next to, to no effort and like right yeah I'm not too sure if I have any real tips I think you know just maybe just yeah break down that barrier of thinking that you can't do it because it, it's definitely something that everyone can have a crack at and, and I think you'd be surprised at how easily your friends will be impressed <laughs> exactly just whip out the bottle and then they're like "Ooh, that's great you yeah. have that yeah and also last but not least if you could be anywhere drinking anything in the world where would that be and what would you drink Oh my goodness! I, it's quite easy. I'm so my partner and I are actually flying to Scotland tomorrow, and we haven't seen his family in about three years. So we are very much looking forward to being over there. And I think right now, I just want to be on the other side of the plane on this big journey ahead of us, and be having a, a whiskey with with his family. I think that'd be pretty special. We're, we're going to have a night in Edinburgh, and I love that love that city. So sitting in a wee bar with his family in Edinburgh sounds pretty great right now. And what we would be drinking most likely a whiskey <laughs> and so the cocktail fans I actually really love a whiskey sour as well as simple as they are I think that love of whiskey and that love of acidity what would the whiskey be 
if I wanted a little bit of peat, maybe a bone more 15. That's something that I, I loved when I visited Isla that, that really spoke to me. And otherwise, what would it be? Maybe just a, like a, an Ardmore, uh, an Abunda, just a delicious sort of sherry dram. I think that would be, would be my pick. Oh, well, it sounds great. Gosh, I, Scotland. I, it's amazing that you could even pick two. Listen. and every time you go you find new ones so i think that's that's the joy of whiskey is like there's so much to discover i know it's all a story well thank you so much for being here it was really really exciting to learn about everything that you're doing all all the way over there and safe travels and we'll see you on this side very soon thank you yeah just to be you know be able to be able to do it again i'm so excited i know traveling yay thanks Thanks so much to Sarah for not only being on the program and introducing us to all the Cadrona spirits, but also sponsoring the transcription for the hearing impaired. I know you're asking, which spirit will we use for our cocktail of the week? Well, here it comes. Our cocktail of the week is the Cardrona Raspberry Cooler. It's the perfect time to make it as raspberries are in season. Grab your highball glass and drop four raspberries and 10 mils of sugar into the glass and muddle them together until crushed. Then add 40 mils of the source gin and 20 mils of fresh lemon juice. Stir well, add more crushed ice, and then garnish with raspberries and a mint sprig. I'm literally about to make one right now. You'll find this recipe, more summary cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find most of the ingredients in our shop. Acid reflux is getting better, and thank goodness, as this is the weekend that we celebrate Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. 70 years doing her thing. Amazing. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leads me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next week, we're in Paris to drink at one of the best bars in the world. Until that time, bottoms up.